Hello, and welcome to the Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. Today, your host, Dr. Edward Salo and Robert Haddock, discuss Haddock's book, Fire on the Water, China, America, and the Future of the Pacific. This episode was edited and produced by William McQuiston. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out. Finally, I want to take this opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Welcome to Sea Control. Today we are talking to Robert Haddock, the author of Fire on the Water, China, America, and the Future of the Pacific. The second edition of this book has recently been published by the Naval Institute Press. Robert Haddock is a visiting senior fellow at the Mitchell Institute of Aerospace Studies, the Air Force Association. He is a former U.S. Marine Corps officer with expertise in Southeast Asia and Africa. He was a contractor for the U.S. Special Operations Command and performed research research, for the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. He was a national security columnist at the Foreign Policy Magazine and has delivered lectures on strategy across the U.S. government. Welcome to Sea Control. It's great to be here, Ed. Thanks for having me on. So can you tell us a little more about yourself and your background and your current position? Sure. After I left university, I uh, entered uh, the U.S. Marine Corps uh, as an officer. Uh, This was during the uh, late Cold War period. I did all my service in the uh, Pacific and uh, Indian Ocean region, deployed there, engaged in uh, security force assistance, training exercises and operations with Uh, U.S. allies and partners across uh, the Indo-Pacific region. And after that, I went on to do other things. And in the, um, oh, say about 15 years ago, I uh, moved to uh, Washington, D.C. to uh, continue uh, national security work there. One of my first jobs, as you mentioned, was writing a weekly column for Foreign Policy Magazine on uh, national security issues, which I uh, did for four years. After that, I moved to uh, work as a contractor at uh, U.S. Special Operations Command out of the uh, McDill Air Force Base headquarters in Florida and uh, worked on uh, many uh, projects for them. And now I'm at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And there I've completed projects for Office of Net Assessment on air power history and campaign strategy, nuclear command and control, modernization, conventional and nuclear deterrence issues, long-range strike, et cetera, and continue to support the Mitchell Institution's uh, research efforts on the roles of air, space power, cyber power, and so forth, uh, as they, and how they link into uh, national strategies. Well, thank you. So this is the second edition of your book. What was the original purpose of the book, and why do you feel uh, there needed to be a second edition? Well, the uh, the origins of Fire on the Water go back to about 2012. I was completing a project at that time for uh, U.S. Special Operations Command 
on strategy in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. And as I completed that project, I felt that I had more to say on the subject, and I had things to say on the on the subject that others weren't saying then about the Chinese threat, the, the, the buildup of the uh, People's Liberation Army and its potential capacity uh, in the decades ahead. And so I approached Adam Kane, who was then a uh, acquisitions editor at Naval Institute Press, about extending into a book-length treatment some of the unclassified research that I had done on the, on this topic for U.S. Special Operations Command and pitched him on that. And uh, he agreed to, um, to take on the project, sponsor the book, which I wrote. And that first edition came out in uh, September of uh, 2014. And the purpose of that first edition of Fire on the Water was to basically alert uh, readers to the growing China threat, the potential of the, the uh, People's Liberation Army, what it could mean to U.S. forces and uh, operational concepts in the Indo-Pacific theater. And a, a lot of people were not paying attention at that time to the uh, rising military threat from China because they were so fo- focused on uh, operations and problems in the Central Command region. But uh, the book got you know, favorable favorable response, and and as I said, the purpose of the book was to alert people to this uh, problem. And uh, I'm happy to say that over the years since it came out, that certainly has been the case. And now everybody's quite energized and activated about the Chinese military threat. Well, in 2020, about seven, six, seven, eight years after. The first project, uh, the, uh, the project of the first edition, Adam Kane, who's now the director of Naval Institute Press, approached me to write a second edition and brought up the point that uh, so much has changed since the first edition came out. Not only uh, new facts and uh, new estimates about the PLA's uh, potential, but also much to say about the U.S. strategic response over the past decade. And uh, so I agreed to uh, write the second edition, and your uh, listeners should understand that the second edition is is almost a completely new book. It's about, eight, I'd say, 85% new material, fully updates, facts, and uh, estimates on uh, the PLA's modernization forecasts into the 2030s uh, in that regard, and provides a, a critique to uh, the U.S. response to the PLA's uh, modernization over the past decade. Thank you. Uh, In the introduction, you described China as a true peer, the likes of which the U.S. has not faced in its hundred years of being a great power. Can you elaborate a little on that? I thought that was a really interesting statement. Well, it's because of uh, China's economic power and the resources available to it far exceed those that were available to the Soviet Union during the Great Cold War and even exceeds China's uh, economic potential in the of course, the economic capability or capacity that China has to support the PLA you know, it even exceeds what the allies had to face uh, against the Axis powers uh, during World War II. So, so it really is something uh, completely different in, in, in terms of the magnitude of the PLA's military potential compared to you know, the Cold War competition or even World War II. And, and so that's 
that's uh, what what makes the uh, threat so much more challenging sort of on an institutional and industrial level for the United States. So the book is basically divided into two parts. The first few chapters kind of take us to where we are now, and the rest is the book gives recommendations. So I guess just kind of starting out, what are the sources of conflict in the Indo-Pacific region between China and the U.S. and its allies? Well, this this is a sort of a fundamental situation that uh, recurs uh, through history when uh, two two great powers face each other in a in a region of the world. So it's uh, not uh, should not be unfamiliar to your you know listeners uh, who are students of history going all the way back say to the ancient Greeks and all the way forward from there. But in, in specifics, the uh, leadership Chinese leadership is no longer comfortable about the U.S. and its coalition partners, allied part, allies and partners in the region, their their control over the sea lines of communication in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. China faces this great dilemma over uh, the Strait of Malacca and the access for oil and natural resources uh, flowing in to power the Chinese economy and the fact that the United States and its allies have uh, control over those straits and those sea lines as is uh, very typical with great powers, the Chinese Communist Party wants more control over its near abroad and would prefer to have uh, pacified neighbors. Uh, and this uh, repeats themes uh, from history. The, uh, the Chinese Communist Party wants its authoritarian system viewed as a, a legitimate form of government throughout the world. And uh, I, I think uh, China's leaders also fear democratic influence and uh, open society influence taking hold inside China and uh, what that could mean to uh, the longevity of their rule uh, over China. And so summing all this up, I think China's leaders uh, think that a a strong PLA military force will give them uh, options to uh, defend the party's uh, rule uh, in China over the long run. Looking at the other side of the table, the United States and its allies, by contrast, want to simply maintain uh, the status quo in the region. And what's ironic is that that status quo has benefited China so greatly over the past four decades. I really enjoyed your history of the American military presence in the region. As a historian, those chapters always get with me. But can you briefly explain how we get, excuse me, how we got into the region? militarily? Sure. It was all a consequence of the great Pacific campaigns against uh, Japan during uh, World War II. And even um, in 1943, uh, you know, almost uh, two years uh, before World War II ended, policy planners, military planners, and uh, diplomacy planners in Washington, D.C. were already planning for what the U.S. posture would be after uh, the war ended. And I uh, discussed this and have citations about all this uh, in the book. And I I agree, it was a kind of fascinating uh, part of my research on this. But anyway, so in 1943, even before the Tarawa campaign uh, in the Gilbert Islands, these planning groups were already planning for U.S. military posture and their conclusion from uh, what they had already seen in World War II was that uh, splendid isolation and offshore balancing 
didn't work to protect the U.S. interests and, and would no longer be U.S. policy after World War II ended. The new policy would be what has been termed perimeter defense in depth, with the defense of the United States beginning on the Eurasian supercontinent itself, with U.S. forces deployed along the perimeter of Eurasia to defend the United States on the other side of the ocean. And that's been the policy ever since then. But there were consequences that flowed from that. The U.S. military thus sort of was designed to fight wars from bases in the theater on the perimeter of Eurasia. And therefore, the development of U.S. military forces, equipment, and operational concepts were focused around relatively short-range systems because they would be fighting from bases close to where the military action would take place. And now the problem, all these 80 years later or 70 years later, is that adversaries like the PLA now possess uh, vast inventories of precision-guided munitions, and they, and they can now shut down, suppress those bases uh, along the Eurasian perimeter from which uh, the U.S. has you know, long been used to fighting from. And studies from the Office of Net Assessment in the 1990s and, and, you know, a series of quadrennial defense reviews beginning in the 1990s and all extending for 20 years after that, predicted the problems with this uh, approach and the threats to these U.S. bases. But the services, unfortunately, ignored these warnings because the implications uh, were too disturbing uh, to their institutional cultures. And that kind of brings us, you've been touched on this. How is China countering the U.S. military in the region? Well, China is exploiting uh, what I call the, the sensor missile military technical revolution. And this is basically the advancement of microprocessors, microelectronics for uh, installed in sensors and missile guidance systems and so forth has uh, become ubiquitous and has allowed advanced military powers like the United States and and the PLA to acquire uh, precision-guided munitions, which uh, vastly increase the efficiency of military operations. And, and now, with uh, ubiquitous networks of sensors tied to long-range precision-guided munitions, uh, targets on the surface, fixed land targets, air bases, and so forth, ports, but also ships at sea are uh, very vulnerable to precision-guided munitions that have been developed and are guided by the uh, sensor missile military technical revolution. And there's a little bit of irony to this because, oh, back 15 years ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago, Admiral Jonathan Greenert, who's a former chief of naval operations uh, for the U.S. Navy, wrote a, an interesting essay for uh, Naval Institute Proceeding magazine called Payloads, Not Platforms. And the theme of that essay was that if a military force has great munitions, that's more important and more gives them more capability than having great platforms from which those munitions are launched. And that's exactly what the PLA is doing now. They have uh, some of the best anti-ship cruise missiles and land attack cruise missiles, and they've really emphasized their military technology developing these great precision-guided munitions and the sensor networks to guide them. And now the 
just looking at uh, the PLA's air power, which resides both in the, the PLA Air Force and in the aviation arm of the PLA Navy, that combined PLA air power has the capacity to fire the launch about 1,400 precision missile shots per day, both land attack and anti-ship missiles per day at a sustained rate of fire day after day after day. And this is a, this uh, missile shot capacity has doubled over the past 10 years. And so surface targets land and at sea inside uh, the PLA's missile engagement zone, and that missile engagement zone extends out 3,000 kilometers deep away from uh, China's coasts. Those targets are, are in grave jeopardy. And, and so therefore, U.S. and coalition war plans that are based on fighting from surface bases inside the PLA's missile engagement zone, those are plans that will result in a severe casualties and likely failure for the U.S. and its allies. Well, that brings us to the question of what has the U.S. been doing to counter that threat right now? Well, unfortunately, and and I discussed this in uh, detail in the sort of the middle portion uh, of the book, as a group, and of course there you know in, there are individuals that are exceptions to this, but as a rule and as a group, I'd say that senior officials, military and civilian inside the Department of Defense, have yet to reckon with the implications of uh, the PLA's employment of the uh, military technical revolution. A truly effective response that would really recognize the threats to surface forces is is just too disruptive to the institutional cultures inside the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill and among uh, the defense uh, contract contracting system. And thus, in my view, there's been a very little response uh, to the PLA missile threat. There's been tinkering at the edges, but but the response has not been uh, large enough to be effective against the, the threat that uh, has now emerged, in my view. And basically, uh, every uh, war game that think tanks and planning staffs inside the Pentagon run and up at the Naval War College in uh, Newport and elsewhere, all these war games uh, reveal this to be true. But responses are, are yet, yet to come about, unfortunately. So the next three chapters deal with what you call a new approach to a conventional deterrent to China. Can you discuss the elements of this proposed new deterrent? Well, yes, the uh, United States and its allies and partners in in the region need an operational concept better than what seems to be present right now. And they need an operational concept that matches U.S. strengths against uh, China's vulnerabilities. And that new concept also needs to avoid exposing U.S. and allied centers of gravity to the PLA's firepower. We don't know what the Indo-Pacific Command's war plans are. Obviously, they're top secret. But we do know what the Department of Defense has invested in for many years. And we can see from that that, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. is postured to fight, to attempt to fight from inside uh, the PLA's missile engagement zone which, for reasons I've already explained, doesn't appear to be a great idea. So what to do? Well, what the basic idea is that the U.S. needs to 
make a critical assessment of what its strengths and vulnerabilities are, and then look at uh, China and see what its strengths and vulnerabilities are and, and try to match up U.S. strengths against uh, China's vulnerabilities and avoid having the same done to the United States the other way. And w- one of China's great vulnerabilities is its own Navy, its own surface fleet. And that China needs that surface fleet if it's going, it's going to succeed in uh, conquest of Taiwan or the Senkakus or other offensive military operations in the region. And so uh, there, are, there are opportunities for the United States to match up its uh, strengths in uh, long-range strike, its bomber aircraft equipped with anti-ship cruise missiles and so forth, and match them up against China's vulnerability, its uh, surface navy. And, and so uh, under a concept like that, the mission of the U.S. bomber plus uh, attack submarine force would be to uh, destroy China's maritime power, and not just its Greyhold Navy, but its uh, other parts of its uh, China's maritime power broadly defined, destroy that maritime power as rapidly as possible. One way to construct a force to do this, and this can be done uh, based on extensions of forces that the U.S. already possesses, would be to uh, maintain a... uh, tripwire force along the first island chain that China would have to attack in order to achieve any aggression goals in the region, but it would ensure that the U.S. would be a combatant in the war. But that tripwire force should not be large enough to be a a center of gravity that would cause uh, the United States to lose the war. The big hammer for the United States should should come from over the horizon and that would be the bomber force and the Navy's attack submarine forces, which um, the PLA cannot really get to. They cannot interdict uh, those forces like they can surface forces west of uh, the Second Island chain. And that, that big hammer coming from over the horizon would be the force that would actually do the job of uh, defeating China's surface forces if uh, they attempted aggression in the region. So uh, you comment that your recommendations are more for managing the peace and not a war plan. In your opinion, how can a good strategy preserve the peace and create a military that is able to win a war if that occurs? Yes, well, the the whole point of uh, everything I discuss in the book is uh, to prevent a war from uh, occurring in the first place uh, by strengthening uh, deterrence and uh, convincing uh, China's leaders that uh, they don't have uh, feasible uh, military options uh, for aggression. And uh, this is going to be an open-ended competition, uh, and we have to assume that it's going to last for decades, uh, just as the uh, competition against the Soviet Union was uh, open-ended and lasted for decades. And so U.S. deterrence strategy and modernization of U.S. conventional forces to create deterrence by denial in the region has to be a strategy that's economical and affordable and something uh, that the U.S. uh, public and the, the U.S. policy process will support over the long term over many administrations of all political parties and so forth. Now, we did this against the Soviets during the Cold War, and we can do it again against China uh, in this century. 
But to have a, an economical and affordable military investment strategy, that strategy has to economize. It has to focus on the best competitive matchups. What we do, uh, our uh, U.S. enduring strengths versus uh, China's enduring vulnerabilities. And uh, my conclusion, uh, as I discussed in the, in the last chapter of the book, is that there could be a happy outcome on this, that the, that the United States and its allies can sustain uh, conventional deterrence by denial over the long run and at an affordable price to society. We have some uh, factors uh, benefiting us in this regard. China and its society and economy are actually on a bad trajectory for the remainder of the century. Uh, China's labor force is uh, declining rapidly. That's an artifact of the one-child policy. And according to um, projections from uh, the United Nations, China can expect its uh, labor force to, to decline by uh, 40% between now and the end of uh, the century, whereas uh, the U.S. Uh, labor force will continue, continue its steady growth uh, during that period. China's economic productivity is stagnant relative to the United States. And now, because of China's increased belligerence, our allies and partners in the region are now more motivated to work with the United States and are more energized against the Chinese threat and uh, now uh, cooperate uh, more than ever with the United States on uh, military preparation, interoperability, training exercises, and so forth. So. My conclusion from all this is, as I said, the coalition, U.S.-led coalition, can sustain this comp competition at a reasonable cost over the long run. But doing so is going to require better civilian leadership than has existed at most times since the end of the Cold War. And I, I discuss in the book, uh, make con contrast U.S. Uh, civilian leaders during the Cold War, how in, in many cases these leaders were presidents themselves, like Eisenhower and Kennedy and uh, Carter and Reagan, they were very knowledgeable about defense issues. They had uh, strong views. They had studied the details, and they frequently pushed through uh, dramatic changes in strategy and investments to counter uh, the Soviet Union and the changing strategic situation with the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. policy, defense policy processes has got complacent and senior policymakers didn't engage so much on defense issues anymore. And the services have basically been left to um, manage their own affairs. And this has not resulted in a good solution because we don't have the coordinated, integrated, reformed strategy that we need to uh, confront the rapidly uh, rising threat that China now presents. So the allies and the partners the U.S. have in the region, they seem pretty critical to the strategy. Would you agree? Yes, U.S. allies and partners are very important and very helpful. I'd say that the uh, cooperative relationship that, that the U.S. has with its partners and allies in the region has uh, never been better than it is now. And that's a lot of that is the result of the clear gravity of the Chinese threat, which nobody can deny now and everybody ha is responding to. So so the U.S. relationship with its allies is in good shape now compared to where it was 10 or 20 years ago. And we can see that with the military training exercises that occur and 
what's happening with the coordination on interoperability of, of military forces and so forth. And there's always more to do in that uh, in that regard. The U.S. Uh, should always be a reliable ally and should always do what it what it can to be a good ally and to uh, further strengthen these relationships and never leave that in doubt. But the United States also, uh, it's always good to uh, assume the worst when uh, making long-range plans for your defense needs. And ultimately, though, the United States needs uh, defense programs and operational concepts that don't absolutely require partner consent to achieve U.S. security. And so uh, ultimately, the United States needs military investments and concepts that would will allow it to win a war on its own if necessary. But, you know, having said that, we should cherish our, our allies and partners and always be a, a great ally ourselves. So kind of ending up the interview with the elephant that's always in the room, Taiwan. In your opinion, do you feel that there is going to be a major crisis? Or is this going to be something that both parties saber rattle with, but isn't going to be the the major thing that causes conflict? Well, there's no question, Ed, but that Taiwan is uh, the great flashpoint, and it's and it's the uh, key strategic objective for uh, both sides of the competition in the region. And naturally, I, I do uh, discuss uh, the Taiwan flashpoint quite a bit in my book. Xi Jinping just reminded uh, President Biden about how critical, uh, what a, a core issue Taiwan is to the uh, PLA uh, leadership, to the CCP leadership, to him personally. So this is the key test of deterrence by denial. It's uh, China's core strategic goal, but it's also the hardest nut, the hardest challenge for U.S. military strategy in the region. But uh, there's there's no need for war over Taiwan if the U.S. builds its elements of uh, deterrence, builds uh, the three factors of uh, deterrence that make deterrence successful. Firstly, having a, a military capability that will uh, defeat China's war plan and, and that China can't do anything about. And I've described that in this podcast already. Long-range strike forces, plus uh, the Navy's attack submarines, and a sensor network uh, that su- supports that operational concept. So first, have a capability that China can't do anything about. Then the second part, second factor of deterrence is displaying the will to use this capability. And uh, this was a regular feature during uh, the Cold War against the Soviet Union, where the U.S. and its European allies regularly displayed their nuclear forces uh, with um, ex- exercises and displays that uh, convinced the Soviet leadership that we had the forces and we had the will to, to use them if we were provoked to do so. And then the last factor of deterrence is to make sure that the adversary understands the first two factors, capability and will, within that adversary's own cultural framework. And uh, this requires knowledge about how the adversary's cultural framework functions. So you need all three of these for deterrence. Ever, ever since the end of the Cold War, U.S. policymakers have been a little bit shy about 
building and displaying military power for the purposes of deterrence. But now with China's assertiveness and the rapid growth of the PLA, these policymakers need to learn more from their Cold War era predecessors about how to build these three elements of deterrence and show, drop their shyness and show their willingness to display these components of deterrence in order to uh, prevent a war over Taiwan or anywhere else in the region uh, from occurring. Well, thank you. So what are you currently working on now and how can our listeners follow you on social media or other places? Well, I think the the best way to, to follow me is through the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies website and the work of uh, my my colleagues there. What I'm uh, currently working on is I'm continuing to write essays and record podcasts that uh, explain the the themes in in, in the book Fire on the Water Second Edition. Uh, for example, in September I had an essay at, on War on the Rocks that uh, discussed uh, this matchup against uh, U.S. long range strike versus the the PLA Navy. Last week, I believe it was, I had an essay in The Hill that talked about the Australia-UK-US defense sharing agreement and how to save that agreement and keep it moving forward. Politico just made a mention of um, uh, my book in their one book, uh, Three Questions section in their uh, weekly China newsletter. Uh, I'll have podcasts forthcoming from uh, the Air University, uh, Asia Pacific uh, Research Center and uh, later from uh, Aerospace Advantage podcast from the, from the Mitchell Institute itself, uh, my home base. So more, more to come, talking about the themes of the book and uh, trying to get that message out. Well, thank you for your time. And like I said, I really enjoyed the book. It was um, very thought-provoking and something that is definitely uh, timely right now. So this is, um, again, Sea Control, and we thank you and see you next episode.